Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I think uh, the president the other day called it a season of substance. The White House has a lot to brag about these days. We now have a presidency where the president has delivered the largest economic recovery plan since Roosevelt, the largest infrastructure plan since Eisenhower, the most judges confirmed since Kennedy, the second largest health care bill since Johnson, and the largest climate change bill in history. That's Ron Klain, President Joe Biden's chief of staff. On Thursday, I headed to the White House and chatted with Klain for about 35 minutes in the Roosevelt Room. That's the one you see on TV with the long conference table, leather chairs, and lots of paintings of Teddy and Franklin. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. The president was out of town on Thursday, so the vibe in the West Wing was a little more relaxed. Like, do you get more done when he's not here? Uh, like, when he's here, it's like you're on call. Yeah, right? no, I definitely get more done when he's not here. No question about it. I talked to Klain about the ups and downs of the last 18 months of the Biden administration and previewed what's ahead for the coming elections. Uh, the Supreme Court's decision on choice uh, has electrified our voters. I think people are starting to see every day more and more extreme things come out of the states. And I think that is made abundantly clear what's at stake in this election. If we had had this conversation with Klain just a month ago, it would have been a lot different. But the late summer of 2022 brought a burst of legislative victories for Biden and Democrats in Washington. And it happened partly because the White House retooled its legislative strategy, removing Biden from the nitty gritty of negotiations, lowering expectations a bit, and taking what they could get from the Senate rather than trying to force Biden's will on the upper chamber. It worked. And now, for the first time in a long time, there is something that has been lacking from a lot of White House officials. Optimism about the midterms. What should the message be uh, to the American people in in the midterms about why Democrats should be rewarded with um, controlling the House and Senate again? And um, what a uh, post-midterm with Democrats in charge would, uh, would get done? Yeah. Well, I need to be a little careful here because we're here in the White House and I'm going to try not to no, engage. Ha- no, Remy made sh- warned me against yeah, Hatch yeah. Act violations. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, you know, we're a little more careful about the Hatch Act perhaps than our predecessors were. Um, but what I will say is you've heard the president start to lay this out. You heard him start to lay it out in his remarks uh, in signing the Inflation Reduction Act. Look, I think that you've heard President Biden say time and time again, uh, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And as we pivot towards election season, That, I think, is the frame. And I think it's going to be less about his approval rating and more about the choice between Democrats and Republicans. And I think that choice is very well positioned for the Democrats. Is there a, this is what we didn't get done in the first two years, and we promised to do uh, if you put us back in power? I think there is, right? I mean, I think we definitely have unfinished business. There's no question about it. Is that still sort of a to be determined in terms of what the the details are there? Uh, look, I think it's very clear. The president's made it very clear. He wants 
uh, to make progress on child care. He wants to make progress on elder care, on education. Uh, we still need to do work on voting rights. Uh, I, you know, I think the list is is out there and it's quite clear. I, I, you know, I've I've been in this business for a long time. Every single election is like this, and that what's that's what this one's going to be like. What do you mean every 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 single election is? About- it's a choice. It's a choice. It's 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 uh, a lot of midterms are. Uh, you know, I think if you're in power during a midterm, you want to make it into a choice. But historically, it seems like a lot of the first midterms are a referendum on the. Well, process. that's fair. I mean, I, I, that's a fair point. Uh, what I would say is, we certainly think this one is a choice. Uh, we think. You know, it's a it's a confluence of being in a better place to talk about what we've done, uh, and also uh, our opponents, uh, ha, you know, have some very very extreme views. And I and I do think that uh, the Supreme Court's decision uh, on choice uh, has electrified our voters. I think people are starting to see every day more and more extreme things come out of the states, uh, and I think that is made abundantly clear what's at stake in this election. And you saw. Uh, the impact of that in Kansas and the referendum there. Uh, and I think as I talk to Democrats around the country, they're seeing it in terms of voter registration and volunteers and enthusiasm and energy. Uh, you know, that's obviously a big part of the backdrop of this election. So that's really going to be front and center is that Supreme Court decision and what Republicans uh, might do if they're in power on that. No, 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 no question about it. What is the thing about Biden that you think is the least understood, um, either in the media's from the media or or from the, from the public, as someone who sees him every day and has known yeah. him for a very long time. So I don't think it's true. He's out there less than his predecessors. I just think Donald Trump created an expectation of a president creating a shitstorm every single day, and that led to a cycle of cable news coverage and Twitter and so on and so forth. And uh, I understand that made people in your line of work you know, very busy and very productive. Uh, I don't think it was good for the country. I don't think the voters wanted it. And I think 81 million of them showed up last in 2020 and said they wanted a different kind of president. And that's who Joe Biden is. He comes into the Oval Office every morning. He's serious about his work. He's serious about the change he's trying to bring to this country. He's determined to deliver that change. Uh, and we're succeeding. And, uh, you know, he's not tweeting out random personal attacks on people. He's not... Uh, you know, get in the middle of culture wars. He's not, uh, you know, just stirring the pot to get on TV. Uh, and, and look, I think this is a choice the media has to make. You know, people can continue to hold uh, endless cable chat-a-thons about what Donald Trump had for lunch at Mar-a-Lago or what plates he threw against the wall. Or they could explain uh, how people are going to save hundreds of dollars by taking advantage of the tax breaks and the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think the assumption that the first of those things is more interesting to people than the second of those things could be dead wrong. Uh, and uh, uh, But what I know is our job is to do our jobs here at the White House in the way President Biden was elected to do his job in the White House. And then we'll let the voters decide. I saw today that um, Patty Murray in Washington State released one her first ad after, the, after her, her primary that was about January 6th. And I found that very interesting because a lot of Democrats are not um, necessarily running on January 6th or the threat to democracy uh, that Democrats believe a, a Trump return represents. And I know there's a sort of interesting strategic debate among, among Democrats about how front and center to make MAGA and Donald Trump himself 
What's your view of how important Trump's return, the threat to democracy that he poses, what we've learned about January 6th, how front and center should that be um, on voters' minds when they vote in the midterms? Well, look, I think, you know, President Biden likes to say it's not your father's Republican Party. It is front and center that this MAGA Republican Party is attacking voting rights, attacking democracy, uh, and also, though, attacking Social Security, attacking Medicare, so on and so forth. And I think they're linked in voters' minds. I think, the, you know, it's, it's kind of a, we have this debate every, every campaign about how far the Republicans will go on rolling back these entitlements and whatnot. And uh, I, I think what you're seeing is, as their party gets more and more extreme, uh, the question is, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's plausible, more and more plausible to voters that, in fact, they will go do these things that we say they're going to do. So I think these things are inter interrelated, intertwined. Uh, again, I think it's, uh, the election is a choice. It's a choice between uh, our agenda and what we stand for and their agenda and what they stand for. Uh, but I, again, I probably should leave it there from, uh, from inside the White House. But that's it. What I hear you saying is it's more important to emphasize issues. I hear you talking about Medicare and Social Security and, and abortion. No, what I'm saying is they're inextricably intertwined. The extreme nature of our opponents, whether it's with regard to democracy or Social Security, are all part of a movement uh, that is just very different than we've seen in recent years uh, in this country. In the first couple of years of the Obama administration, the phrase that was used is um, Obama was, was too much like a prime minister in, in his relationship with yeah. parliament. And they thought it was dragging uh, Obama down and maybe not uh, getting the results from Congress because of that. Just just thinking about the naughtier legislative achievements and specifically what eventually became uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, there there was a sort of a big change in legislative strategy at a certain point, um, I guess, after the blow up in, in, in December. What um, to just talk can you just talk about that 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 change in in legislative strategy? Yeah, I, I think one thing we were seeing uh, in the fall and in the winter was that when you negotiate at the White House, uh, the negotiations are very high profile and put a lot of pressure on everyone involved, kind of create a lot of breadcrumbs for the press to follow and really require... Great for my business. Yeah, great. Good for, good for the, the journalism business. business really likes that. Good, good for the journalism business. Not so good maybe for the progress business. And so I think that uh, one thing we wanted to do was to take the temperature down on these negotiations. And have them conducted in a more low-key way. And I think moving it to Capitol Hill was very effective that way. It, it, it kind of ended this cycle we had in November, December of, of just daily breathlessness about who said what to whom and when they said what to whom and how they said what to whom, which was not a, not a productive vehicle in which we could get to an agreement. So I, I think uh, that was, I think, our big takeaway from where we were at the end of the year, to try to just lower the temperature, lower the heat. Uh, and I think that paid off. Uh, in addition, uh, you know, obviously, uh, the president, uh, starting in February, uh, has been very focused on the war in Ukraine and uh, very out front on that, out front on gun control, where we delivered uh, there as well, working hard on the chips bill uh, and working hard, uh, obviously, on the burn pits bill also. So we had a lot of things we were pushing. I think it made sense to take the negotiation over the reconciliation bill uh, out of the Oval Office, back to Capitol Hill, to have his public focus be on more of other parts of our agenda. Uh, and as a result, I think we've delivered 
on a lot of the agenda. Following up with, with this sort of change in strategy, what's the, what were some of the lessons you learned from 2021 um, about the, the push to get BBB through in a much more expansive way? I'm, I'm curious if I can just get some of your takeaways about you know, what you learned from that process and in, in how to insert the president into negotiations and when, and when to pull him back. I mean, this is a president who knows Congress better than almost any president before him, probably better than anyone since LBJ. What the, if you could just sort of narrate the, the 2021 sort of yeah, look, what, I, what, you, what you learned worked and didn't work. Look, I, I, I feel th- like this is so important going forward. Look, I think we've always used a variety of strategies to deal with Congress. Yeah. But I think there are a few fundamental points. Like David Leonhardt the other day, sorry to mention a competitor, but... Oh, I love David. Great journalist. You know, had a, had a, had a great rack-up of the four key points of the Biden legislative approach, which was never to take the opposition and the setbacks personally, uh, never to get too high or too low, uh, put a lot of faith in Pelosi and Schumer to deliver, uh, and keep talking, constantly keep talking. And look, I think that's what we were doing in 2021. I think that's what we've been doing in 2022. These things sometimes just take time to come together. Uh, and of course, uh, the August recess is always a natural forcing event on Capitol Hill. It's a good cliff to have behind you to make people come to their milk and and you know get some things done. So I think there's a little bit of the natural cycle here working as well. And I also think that... Uh, you know, I, as I look back on 2021, it was an incredibly productive year, too, uh, the in the ARP. sense that we obviously passed the American Rescue Plan, which has been the basis for our economic success. So the record we have in August of 2022 is not just the, pro- the product of this kind of month of a lot of successes all at once here uh, on, the, on, the, on the eve of the August recess, but a lot of successes in 2021, and then more successes in 2022. That list that you you uh, described, that not taking things personal, that does seem like such a Biden trait, <laughs> right? It, I know sometimes it drives people on the left a little crazy because he'll say nice things about, say, Mitch McConnell yeah. or, or, or something. You have seen him up close for a long time now. Just if you could just unpack that a little bit as sort of a, a, a Biden trait. I think um, it's very... It's something maybe people don't know about him. Yeah. But- There's really two of those points that I said before that both uh, come from the president's persona. One, about not taking things personally, and the other about not getting too high and not getting too down uh, when you kind of go through the ups and downs of the daily spin cycle and news cycle here. And I think they reflect two aspects of the president's fundamental character. Uh, the first is 36 years in the U.S. Senate. And the idea that someone who's voting against you today could be your ally tomorrow, and that sense that politics is about relationships over time and not just in the moment, that is the product of a, of a long time on Capitol Hill. And then I'd say you look at the president's personal history. It's a personal history of tremendous joyous successes and devastating tragedies. Uh, there is... Nothing I can ever walk into the Oval Office and tell him that's any bigger than the bigger things he's already experienced in life, and nothing I could ever tell him that's any sadder than the saddest things he's already experienced in life. And I think that gives him a very level temperament as president and uh, you know, just makes him get up every day and come in here and do the work. So even so, during the biggest setbacks when, say, the December uh, blow-up yeah. with, with Senator Manchin, 
he doesn't get um, he doesn't get in a funk and uh, no. He, no, he, he's I, even keeled when it comes to those kinds of things. He's, he's even keeled. Uh, he knows that on the, you know, on the days when the political press is right and we're geniuses, we're not any smarter than on the days when the political press is right and we're idiots. And uh, we, we stick with it. I, look, I think it's how he's run the White House. There certainly have been calls at various points in times for a big shakeup here. That's not what he did. Uh, he has a team he believes in. He has a team that works well together. Uh, and that's the team we've had in place really a lot back to the campaign and certainly since since we got here to the White House. And uh, I think the results that he's produced with his team uh, speak for themselves. On the personal thing, one I can't help but ask, you and Manchin had your moments, if the, you know, if the, if the reporting out there is, is correct in my own reporting. Um, did you sometimes have a, a hard time uh, living by the Biden rule of never taking things personally when you and Manchin had uh, a little bit of uh, friction between you in the in the to and fro over BBB. No, look, it was never. It's never been personal with Senator Manchin. I like Senator Manchin, and I hope he likes me. And we've, uh, I think, gotten along pretty well. Uh, part of your job as White House Chief of Staff is to be the heavy. Part of your job as White House's Chief of Staff is to uh, be the person sometimes who takes the incoming. Andy and Carr used to call it the arrow catcher. I think the ar the arrow catcher. Yes. Yeah. And and so look, I think that's that's part of my job here. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I certainly understand that and accept that. On that, I, I wonder if um, you've, you're someone who has probably studied the job of chief of staff and been in the sort of, you know, pre-White House chief of staff jobs, pretty much more, more, than, uh, more than anyone else in, in your role. Who are the chiefs that you um, want, avoid <laughs> emulating and learned a lot from in terms of their mistakes? And who are the ones where, when you started this job, you um, really modeled yourself on? Well, look, I, I am the White House Chief of Staff who has worked for more Chiefs of Staff than any other Chief of Staff. And there's something I take you, from... Oh, you've worked for more chi previous Chiefs? Yeah. Okay. How many? Ten. You've worked for ten White House Chiefs? Yeah. Wow. And yeah. how many different White Houses? Uh, well, uh, this is my third White House, uh, the, the Clinton White House and the Obama-Biden White House. And there's something but when I, you mean work for the chief of staff, I mean technically everyone works for the chief of staff. Yeah. You, or do you mean like at uh, like? Uh, no, I mean we're, technically everyone works for the chief of staff. But I, but I've I've had relationships with all of them, and and either when I even haven't been a direct report, I've worked very closely with 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 all of them. Got it. Okay. Look, I, I take something from each and every one of them, and uh, you know, and uh, uh, and have ongoing relationships and conversations with uh, every single one of them. Uh, obviously, Dennis McDonough serves here in the Obama and the Biden administration as our Secretary of Veterans Affairs, and uh, as does Rahm Emanuel, who's our ambassador to Japan. So you know, I try to learn the you, lesson. You're closer to Ron or uh, McDonough in terms of your style. <laughs> you know, look, I think in terms of style, I guess I have my own style. But uh, but there are lessons I've learned from Rahm. There are lessons I've learned from Dennis. Uh, John Podesta is a very good longtime friend, and I. Talk to John pretty regularly. Erskine Bowles just was an amazing leader when I served under him here. Worked with Jack Lou, worked with Bill Daly. So, I mean, you, the list goes on and on. Mac McClarty is a, is a friend who I, I stay in touch with. So I, I just think... Mac is not, no offense to Mac at all, but he's not, he's not considered one of the great success stories in terms of the job. Well, look, I think Mac did a really excellent job. Not to he pick on him, in, but... You know, uh, I, I worked here in the in the uh, Clinton White House that first year and a half when Mac was here. And 
Uh, you know, he had one of the hardest jobs ever because he came in. We hadn't had a Democratic president in 12 years. There was no one on the White House staff who'd ever worked in the White House before when Mac McClarty took over. And it, it showed. A, it showed, right? It was a learning experience. <laughs> and that wasn't Mac's uh, fault. Uh, and, and he had to uh, have a lot of people uh, learn their jobs uh, on the job. And so... Uh, That's a big difference, though, now in terms of the talent that you're able to yeah. draw on as a modern Democratic president. Correct. Obviously, a lot has changed since 1993. Uh, virtually everyone on our senior staff served in the White House before. Not everyone, but virtually everyone. And uh, it just gives us a different experience level and a, um, you know, a, a, just a different kind of confidence than we had in 1993. For people that don't understand like what the job is, the next person who steps into it, like, what is the the biggest piece of advice in terms of running the White House as a chief of staff? Like, what's the what is the most important thing you need to sort of calibrate in that job? Is it the, you know, um, how ex how much goes in and out of the the the, the Oval Office in terms of how uh, expansive or tight uh, that is, or is it something else completely? Is it the arrow catching thing that we described? Look, I, I like, what are the two, two or three big things? I think there are two fundamentals to it from my perspective. The first is you have to have a team with a relationship of unquestioned trust. And I have complete trust. When we get together, it's the first meeting we do in the morning, every single morning, six days a week. Uh, the top uh, eight or nine people who work at the White House gather in the, we're sitting in the Roosevelt Room right so it's, now. It's a very tight group. Very tight group. Eight or nine, okay. Yeah, and, and uh, the, the level of trust and respect among that group is very, very important. It's a diverse group. Go through it. Just uh, This will be interesting to our listeners. It's like, so that, that early meeting is, is usually like you and, and who Myself, else? Myself, uh, my two deputies, Jenna Malley Dillon and Bruce Reed, uh, Anita Dunn, Kate Bedingfield, Corrine Jean-Pierre, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, uh, Mike Donilon, Steve Reschetti, and Julie Rodriguez. And, and, and you know, that's our group uh, every morning. Um, when we have a hard strategic question, I put it to the group, and uh, I go with what the group decides. And, um, and sometimes I'm outvoted. And um, every decision that comes to the White House is a 51-49 decision. In our, we have a big government, right? That the the 90 10 decisions, they get made someplace else. The decisions that get kicked up here are the 51 49 decisions. Yeah. I have confidence in our collective wisdom much more than I have in my own. Ron, what's um, the best day been at this White House uh, since, you, since you arrived? Huh. I think that's, uh, you know, uh, for me, it was uh, January 20th, 2021. Uh, and there were times on January 6th where I really wondered if the electoral votes would ever get counted and if Joe Biden would ever get sworn in as president. So to be here at 12 noon on January 20th, uh, to uh, welcome the president here in the Oval Office when he got back from the inauguration ceremonies, to me that was kind of the most profound day and uh, in some ways the biggest victory we could ever win. That, that I think will always be uh, the most important day we've had here. I should have asked this first because I don't want it to be a downer after that, but what was the worst day? <laughs> well, I think there's no question the worst day uh, here was uh, August 26th of last year when we lost uh, 13 service members at, uh, uh, in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, just a terrible tragedy and uh, uh, certainly the darkest day here. It was, huh? That was the, there's yeah. no doubt in your mind. that No that doubt was. in my mind about that. Do you, by the sort of conventional wisdom that's, 
Afghanistan last year was a turning point in the um, polling for the, for the president, and that that was um, what led to the. I think it's hard. Look, I think it's hard to to pinpoint it. I think it lines up with the. You know, uh, I, I think a couple things happened around then, all at the same time. I think that uh, obviously Afghanistan uh, was. Uh, I think it was around the same time, also roughly, that. Uh, the uh, spread of the Delta variant first kind of put in people's minds uh, that being, being vaccinated was not enough to end COVID. We also started to see some of the first uh, upward movement on prices in August. So I think it's a, I th I think it's a mix of factors while well, we had a rough August last year. All right. You're probably about the period of time that's like the average for a chief of staff. What is it about? Eighteen months to two it's years. 50, it's about fifteen months in recent years. Fifteen. Yeah. <laughs> not that you. Not that you remember that. Uh, you know, you pay attention. Um, how much longer do you anticipate being in this job? Uh, I'll be here as long as I feel like I can get up every day and do my job and do well and contribute to the team, and as long as the president wants me to be here. And so who, we'll see. And who do you think your likely uh, successor would be? Well, that's a better question put to the president than me. Ron, thank you very thank much you, for Ron. doing this. Appreciate it. I really appreciate it. And that's our show. Our producers are Afra Abdullah and Kara Tabor. Adam Allington is our senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Amont is the executive producer of audio at Politico. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. 